Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. As a follower of true crime, there's always that one unsolved case that really bothers you. You know the whole story, and you feel like it could be solved. But years go by, and it remains unsolved. Armchair detectives post their theories online, and you of course have your own. And then, miraculously, decades later, there's a break in the case, and the killer is finally revealed. This week, I'm going to cover the murder of Arliss Perry. For true crime aficionados, this is one of the more famous ones. And I almost covered it when I first started the podcast. I've had it on my list forever. 19-year-old Arliss Perry was found murdered inside Stanford Memorial Church in Stanford, California, in 1974. Her body was found by a security guard in the morning after she went missing the night before. An ice pick was stuck in the back of her head, and she'd been strangled. Her body was naked from the waist down, and an altar candle was inserted in her vagina. The case shocked the quiet area, and for many years, it remained unsolved. Now, many of you know the outcome of this story, but for those of you who don't, I'm going to wait until later to tell you who the actual murderer was and how they were discovered. 
Recently, there's been a ton of breaks in many notorious cold cases. The biggest is, of course, the arrest of Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer. For decades, he eluded capture. I was just totally blown away when that break was made. The use of DNA has become the missing link needed to solve many of these crimes. And it was, eventually, what led police to Arliss's killer. For years, there have been crazy theories and speculation surrounding her death, running so far as to include the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and satanic cults. But in the end, it was Occam's razor. Police always had a suspect, they just never had enough evidence. Arliss K. Dykma was born on February 22, 1955 in Bismarck, North Dakota. And that was where she met her future husband, Bruce Perry, when they both attended the same high school. When Bruce graduated, he moved to California to attend Stanford University as a pre-med student. Stanford is one of the country's top universities, commonly referred to as a dream college for students to get into. Stanford lies in the city of Palo Alto in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's home to many high-tech companies like Hewlett-Packard and Lockheed Martin. Since Arliss was a year behind, they decided on a long-distance relationship while she still finished high school. Those types of relationships can be very difficult, and many don't survive. And that was something that worried Arliss. She was a devout Christian, so I'd imagine that she wanted to wait until marriage until things progressed. And in the meantime, she found a job at a dental office. And that enabled her to earn extra money in order to be with Bruce in California. Not long after she graduated, she married her sweetheart, and she made the choice to follow him out to California. Now, this was a big move, not just physically, but mentally. She'd never been away from home before in her life. I mean, just think about it. She's just out of high school, and she moves across the country to a place she's never been before, where she doesn't know anyone but one person. That could be very stressful on anyone, much less someone so young. And in fact, it was stressful. After the couple settled into their new home in Quillen Hall and Escondido Village, Arliss wrote home about how lonely she was when she corresponded with her friends and family. She told a friend that friends were hard to find in Palo Alto. Bruce was working and going to school, so she rarely saw him. And that left her completely on her own in a city unfamiliar to her. So to keep herself busy, she would walk around the sprawling campus or she would frequently go to nearby Stanford Memorial Church, which was less than a mile from their apartment. It's part of what's called the Quad on campus that connects the entire complex, and it's reminiscent of European public spaces. Arliss went to church frequently to meditate and to lean on her faith through this difficult time. The ceilings in the church are so high, it seems like they could touch heaven itself, so it's easy to see why she loved it there so much. It wasn't long before she found work as a receptionist at the law firm of Spaeth, Blase, Valentine, and Klein. And that helped her with her feelings of loneliness. Finally, she had more than just Bruce to talk to and began to enjoy her new life. The last night of Arliss Perry's life would be on October 12th. Bruce and Arliss were taking a walk around campus later in the night. And during their walk, an argument ensued. Now, it wasn't anything serious, just one of those typical fights that couples get into over something small, but it blows into something big and gets out of proportion. We've all had them. 
I mean, it's something you look back on and laugh at how stupid it was. But at that moment, they were both really hot under the collar about it. So to cool down, Bruce headed back to their apartment, and Arliss decided to go to the church and pray. Now, I've read some other accounts about what Bruce and Arliss were doing that night. Some accounts say they were in a car and arguing about something to do with the car. But all accounts agree on the fact that they did argue, and they went separate ways. Bruce going home, and Arliss going to the church. And that was a little before midnight. She was witnessed entering the church by at least three people, one of those being security guard Stephen Crawford. The other two were people leaving the church, who distinctly remembered also seeing a young man entering wearing a blue t-shirt. The church closed shortly after midnight, and then the security guard let everyone know that he was going to lock up, but he didn't recall seeing anyone around. That was approximately 12.10 a.m., Bruce waited for his wife to come home, and hours went by and still no Arliss. When it got to be around 3 a.m., he realized that this was way more than Arliss being mad. Something was seriously wrong. So he called the police to report his wife missing. Officers from the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Department went to the church to investigate, but they found the doors locked. Arliss was nowhere around. The security guard had checked the doors every few hours after the initial lockup, and he didn't see anything out of order at any time during the night. Bruce had even checked around the church himself around 12.30 a.m. when Arliss hadn't returned. He found the same situation. The doors were locked, and there was no sign of his wife. The church reopened its doors every day at 6 a.m., and to prepare, the security guard, Stephen Crawford, returned at 5.45 a.m. to open it up, finding one of its doors already unlocked. Hesitant, he made his way inside. Near the altar, he found Arliss. It was a shocking sight. Her jeans and underwear had been pulled down to her ankles, and she lay spread eagle as if for shock value. Most disturbing was a three-foot-long altar candle that was inserted between her legs. Her shirt was torn open with another candle placed between her breasts. An ice pick was shoved into her head, and she'd been beaten and strangled. It was unclear if she'd been raped or not, but semen was found on a kneeling pillow that was near the body. The killer was sloppy. He also left a bloody palm print on one of the candles. Crawford recounted to the police of how he checked the doors throughout the night with no problems, only to find the doors forced open from the inside in the morning. And once again, he insisted the church was empty of patrons when he locked up. He had last rechecked the doors around 2 a.m. with no issues. Since Bruce and Arliss had last fought, he was their initial first suspect. But his story checked out, and he was cleared. And next was the security guard, Stephen Crawford, and he was also cleared by police. Apparently, at the time, neither men matched the semen sample that had been found at the scene. The only other suspect was a mystery man who entered the church around the same time as Arliss. No one knew his identity, just the general description. Medium build with sandy-colored hair, about 5'10 with a blue t-shirt. Funny enough, the same man also matched a description of a man seen arguing with Arliss outside of her work just a few days prior to her death. Her co-workers thought it was her husband, Bruce, since they'd never met him before. 
When she returned inside, she seemed upset by the incident. However, that man wasn't Bruce. So who was the man that she was seen arguing with? And could it have been the same man seen entering the church after her? And the biggest question is, was this Arliss's killer? Stanford University put up a $10,000 reward in the hopes of getting any information. Not long before Arliss was murdered, there have been about three other murders in the Stanford area, occurring between 1973 and 1974. The first was on February 16, 1973. 21-year-old Stanford graduate Leslie Ann Perlov was found in the foothills behind the campus. She was barefoot with a blue scarf wrapped tightly around her neck. She was found by a search party in a wooded area less than a mile from where the body of a 24-year-old student named Mark Roswald had killed himself with a shotgun. Leslie worked as a legal secretary in the North County Law Library, where she was last seen alive. Her orange Chevy Nova had been found near the intersection of Page Mill Road and Juniper Sarah Boulevard. An officer recalled seeing a man with long blonde hair standing beside the car the afternoon she disappeared. Like Arliss, Leslie was thought to have been sexually assaulted because her skirt was pulled up to her waist, and she had her pantyhose stuffed in her mouth. As well as the blonde man, Ted Bundy was a suspect for his time in the murder, since the crime had striking similarities to some of his victims. He had actually been at Stanford in 1967, so he was familiar with its campus. However, leads went nowhere, and the case went cold. The next death occurred on September 11th of 1973. 20-year-old physics student David Levine was last seen leaving the physics department to head to his dorm at Escondido Village. That was the same place where Arliss and Bruce lived. At 3 a.m., a jogger found his body on a path near Meyer Library. He had been stabbed 12 times in the back and once in the chest. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. But there was no sign of a struggle, and his wallet was inside his pants, so police thought it was, quote, someone seeking revenge. 
His death was very similar to one that happened in December of 1973 at the University of California at Berkeley. And that death was supposedly linked to the death angels. When I read that, I thought, who are the death angels? So I'll give you a quick explanation of that whole thing. So the death angels were a group of black male Muslims who committed at least 15 murders and eight attempted murders, with some thinking the actual total may be as high as 73. And the victims were all white. Criminology professor Anthony Walsh said that the death angels may have killed more people in the early 70s than all of the other serial killers operating during that period combined. That's a bold statement to say the least. And the killings were branded the Zebra Killings because Zebra was the special radio band police used for the case. Now, all these victims were attacked in a variety of ways, everything from guns to a machete. The common link was that the victims all had the same skin color. This whole thing could be a podcast in itself, so I'll wrap it up pretty quickly. Four men were arrested and convicted of crimes related to the Zebra murders. They were Manuel Moore, Larry Green, Jesse Lee Cooks, and J.C.X. Simon. They were all sentenced to life in prison. So David's death could very well be attributed to these men, although it was never proven. The last death was that of 21-year-old Janet Ann Taylor on March 25th of 1974. Janet was last seen leaving campus around 7.05 p.m. the night before, hitchhiking near Juniper Cerro Boulevard. Remember, that's where Leslie's body was found. Janet was the daughter of the former athletic director at Stanford. Her body was barefoot, also like Leslie, but it didn't appear that she'd been sexually assaulted. The purse she'd been carrying wasn't found, but apparently she didn't have any money, so that wasn't a motive for robbery. A man had been seen standing near a white 1964 Pontiac around 12.15 a.m., near where the body was found. According to an eyewitness, that man acted nervous. Once again, Ted Bundy was briefly considered a suspect, but was eventually ruled out. So were these murders linked to Arliss's? I mean, David and the Perrys both lived in the same area, so they had that in common. And you had a blonde man seen near Leslie's car, and a nervous man seen where Janet's body was found. And there was the blonde man connected to Arliss. Another theory is that all these deaths were related and the work of a cult or a satanic group. So if you listen to my episode about David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, you might remember me mentioning the possible connection to Arliss Perry in that one. Although this is one of the more outrageous theories, it's still interesting and one that conspiracy theorists clung to in Arliss's death. So there's a guy named Brian McCracken, and he came forward saying he knew who killed Arliss. But buckle up, because this is a weird story. McCracken claims to have left a coffee shop near the church where Arliss was killed around midnight. He said he was walking past the church when he heard strange flute music coming from inside. And supposedly, upon entering, he saw a young, skinny white guy at the lectern, wearing an Afro wig, playing a very large flute. And to his right, on an altar, was a nude girl with candlesticks burning on both sides of her. McCracken said the girl looked directly at him. and She didn't seem happy to see him, but she turned her head and smiled. He said he was less than 20 feet from the altar at this time. 
And he said the man in the wig had a look on his face that made McCracken feel like he was intruding, which caused him to leave. He said he never told this story to the police, and he didn't connect the death to Arliss to the strange scene until years later. In 2011, while talking to a retired police officer, the details clicked in his mind. He realized that what he'd seen that night might be the link to this mysterious murder. He remembered seeing the Afro-wearing loudest in the Stanford marching band. So after doing some internet sleuthing, he found a picture of that same man. And it was him. So he took his findings to the Santa Clara County Sergeant Herman Leon, and a retired detective turned P.I. named Randy Bynum in 2011. Those men posed as reporters, and along with a female psychologist, they questioned the man after one of his concerts. He admitted to wearing an Afro wig at the time. Apparently, this guy became suspicious of the interview and supposedly hightailed it out of the state. Okay, so what does all this have to do with the son of Sam? New York Post reporter Maury Terry wrote a book called The Ultimate Evil, Connecting the Death of Arliss to Satanists. He said that David Berkowitz had intimate knowledge of her killing. Terry has covered the Son of Sam case for more than 25 years. In the late 70s, David Berkowitz held New York in the grip of fear with his multiple shootings. It became the Summer of Sam. When he was caught, he had killed six and wounded seven others. After his arrest, he claimed to have acted on the orders of the neighbor's dog, who was possessed by a demon. The dog spoke to him, ordering him to kill. Then he claimed that he had been part of a satanic cult, and this cult supposedly involved the sons of his neighbor, Sam, who owned the demon dog. In 1979, he mailed a book about witchcraft to police in North Dakota. In the book, he had underlined sentences and wrote in the margins, one note read, Arliss Perry, hunted, stalked, and slain, followed to California Stanford University. He claimed to have joined a cult in 1975, brought in by his neighbors, the two brothers, John and Michael Carr, sons of the infamous Sam. He said John Carr was actually the real son of Sam Shooter, aided by his brother. Many added credence to this theory, saying that there was no way Berkowitz could have acted alone. This theory was substantiated by many different eyewitness accounts of cars and suspects' descriptions. Maury Terry is one of those who think that there was something to the theory of more than one suspect. After writing many investigative articles, he compiled them all into his book, The Ultimate Evil. The 500-page book makes some shocking allegations. Berkowitz said he was brought into the group after attending a party in Yonkers. At a park nearby, the group would perform rituals, going so far as to sacrifice animals. That led to child pornography and later murder. Apparently, there were remains of several dogs found in the park, as well as a building that had contained some satanic drawings. Berkowitz claimed to be a scout at the shootings. Some eyewitnesses recall seeing a man in a blonde wig driving a yellow Volkswagen, which was the total opposite of what Berkowitz looked like and what he drove. And not to give any credence to this theory, but a blonde man was seen at the scene of Arliss's death and some of the others possibly linked to hers. So I can see why some bought into this theory. But the Carr brothers, who lived next to Berkowitz, were supposedly involved in this cult, and according to him, the real killers can't defend themselves. 
both suffered tragic deaths. Michael Carr died in a car accident, and John Carr died of gunshot wounds in North Dakota, which was possibly a homicide. But a lot of people are calling bullshit on this theory. One being FBI profiler John Douglas. He spent hours interviewing Berkowitz. Berkowitz, he concluded, was, quote, an introverted loner, not capable of being involved in a group activity. Berkowitz also gave intimate details of the crime directly after his capture. So I agree with Douglas. I think he acted alone and was entirely responsible for the killings. Anytime someone throws out a satanic cult theory, I'm very wary because it usually turns out to be something else. So anyway, back to the connection to Arliss. Berkowitz most likely heard of her murder and wanted to tie it somehow to his killings. He led police on a big goose chase. I mean, they had to explore every lead. And with the odd ritualistic way she was laid out and displayed, I don't blame them. It did seem like more than the average murder. We have a woman that was murdered in a church, laid out by an altar, with candles deliberately placed by and in her. So it does have some big significance, it seems like. When Arliss was murdered in 1974, DNA evidence was not something that was available. But evidence was always kept in cases for hopes of future development, which is pretty smart. DNA is what eventually solved this crime. Finally, deputies were able to obtain a search warrant for apartment 185. And who lived at this apartment? Former security guard Stephen Crawford. Apparently, police never officially cleared him as a suspect. They just never had enough evidence to nail him. With the advance of DNA, they finally had what they needed. They had interviewed him in recent weeks, and when they came with the search warrant, Crawford shot himself. So no satanic cult or death angels involved. It was simply the last person who saw her. Crawford had been arrested in 1992 on suspicion of theft and artifacts and books at Stanford University and several libraries. Crawford had lived at his Del Coronado apartment building since 1993. This was a year after he had been arrested for stealing artwork. That day, neighbors awoke to a loud bang. Crawford lived alone in the apartment. He was considered a recluse, seen sometimes wearing his trademark cowboy hat and using a cane. He lived on Social Security. Maintenance workers who had been inside his apartment said it was sparsely decorated with Western artwork, most likely the stolen artwork. When detectives came with the search warrant, Crawford stalled them, saying he needed to get dressed. Then he entered his bedroom and shot himself in the head with a large revolver. DNA evidence on Arliss's clothing was retested in 2016 and used to make a match to Crawford. A cold case unit had been trying to eliminate everyone previously contacted in the case. Apparently, Crawford had written a suicide note two years ago when he was last interrogated about the killing. But the note did not mention Arliss. Crawford was actually a suspect for years, but police kept that under wraps. This happens in a lot of cases, just not enough evidence to charge the person. He eluded capture for four decades and DNA eventually brought him down. But there's still a mystery in this case. Like, why did Stephen Crawford kill Arliss Perry? That is something he took to his grave. 
Police do not think he is connected in any way to the mysterious deaths that occurred in Stanford prior to Arliss's death. Arliss's 88-year-old mother is still alive. Jean Dykma said she was heartbroken that he wasn't caught sooner. And that's because Arliss's father, Marvin, had been possessed with wanting to know what happened to his daughter in the last years of his life. And sadly, he died three months before Crawford was arrested. She said, When they were getting married, we weren't too happy. She had a big wedding, and they left in the car, and that's the last we saw of her. That's heartbreaking to think that that was the last time they saw her. She had such a future ahead of her, only to have it snatched away. And for her parents to know that she was violated in such a crude manner, too. I can't imagine that there's ever really any kind of closure to a family of a murdered loved one. A killer finally being caught can only provide so much solace. The three other Stanford murders remain unsolved, and most likely they were unrelated. California was a crazy hotbed of murder in the 70s. I mean, it's a miracle if that's ever going to be solved. I'm astonished that Arliss's death was. But with DNA finally being utilized in cold cases, we're starting to see a flood of cases be solved. It's amazing. The man who broke the Golden State Killer case, the great Paul Holes, weighed in on the capture of Stephen Crawford. He said, With advances in traditional DNA testing done in crime labs, it sounds like they were finally able to get a DNA profile to show that the person they suspected was actually the guy that was responsible for that homicide. He noted the advances made in DNA in the past two years, and without it, Joseph D'Angelo would still be walking free. That was the murder of Arliss Perry. It's insane to think that when I first thought of covering this, this was still an unsolved case. Advances in the use of DNA will solve many more cases that still baffle us. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to reach out to the podcast, you can join the Red Rum Blonde Facebook group. You can also find me on Twitter at Blonde Red Rum. I'm also on Instagram, or you can email me now at redrumblonde.com. Thanks so much for listening, and catch you next week.